PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for Volume 88, November 2008, The Diabetes Special Issue. A wide range of topics are covered in this special issue, including epidemiology, the intricacies of fat, exercise and glycemic control, insulin resistance and physical fitness, gait dysfunction, the neuropathic foot, and more. The issue also includes a reprint of Comprehensive Foot Examination and Risk Assessment, which appeared in the August 2008 issue of Diabetes Care. A link to the original article appears with the rest of the special issue on PTJ Online at www.ptjournal.org. Be sure to hear the podcast discussion related to this special issue. Visit PTJ Online or iTunes. Simply search the iTunes store for PTJ. To hear authors Robin Marcus, David Senecor, and Lisa steno discuss fat, muscle, and the benefits of exercise for people with diabetes. First this month, Epidemiology of Diabetes and Diabetes-Related Complications by Dr. Angeli Deshpande, Dr. Marcy Harris-Hayes, and Dr. Mario Schutman. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. In 2005, it was estimated that more than 20 million people in the United States had diabetes. Approximately 30% of these people had undiagnosed cases. Increased risk for diabetes is primarily associated with age, ethnicity, family history of diabetes, smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Diabetes-related complications including cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, neuropathy, blindness, and lower extremity amputation are a significant cause of increased morbidity and mortality among people with diabetes. These complications result in a heavy economic burden on the U.S. healthcare system. With advances in treatment for diabetes and its associated complications, people with diabetes are living longer with their condition. This longer lifespan will contribute to further increases in the morbidity associated with diabetes, primarily in elderly people and in minority racial or ethnic groups. In the year 2050, the number of people in the United States with diagnosed diabetes is estimated to grow to 48 million. Results from randomized controlled trials provide evidence that intensive lifestyle interventions can prevent or delay the onset of diabetes in high-risk individuals. In addition, adequate and sustained control of blood sugar levels, blood pressure, and blood lipid levels can prevent or delay the onset of diabetes-related complications in people with diabetes. Effective interventions at both the individual and population levels are desperately needed to slow the diabetes epidemic and reduce diabetes-related complications in the United States. This report describes the current diabetes epidemic and the health and economic impact of diabetes complications on individuals and on the health care system. The report also provides suggestions by which the epidemic can be curbed. 
Lead author Dr. Anjali Deshpande is Research Assistant Professor in the Division of Health Behavior Research, Department of Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. At the time the report was prepared, Dr. Deshpande was Assistant Professor in the Department of Community Health at St. Louis University School of Public Health in St. Louis, Missouri. Next, Intricacies of Fat by Lisa Steno-Biddle. One of the most exciting fields of study in cell biology concerns the physiology and pathology of fat. The basic assumptions once held concerning the function of adipose tissue have been shown to be oversimplified or sometimes completely wrong. Fat does more than store excess energy. It is actually the largest endocrine organ in the body, and it may be one of the most active. Adipocytes release hormones and other molecules that act on nearby tissues and travel through the vasculature to distant sites, such as the brain, skeletal muscle, and liver. Under conditions of normal weight, those signals help the body to suppress hunger, utilize glucose, and decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease. However, under conditions of obesity, the hormones, or the proteins that bind the hormones, become abnormal and can result in states of chronic inflammation leading to diabetes and heart disease. In addition, excessive fat can lead to the accumulation of lipid droplets in non-fat cells, including skeletal and cardiac muscle. Although some lipid droplets are used as an immediate source of energy for cells, large numbers of stored droplets can cause cellular damage and cell death. The purposes of this article are to review the normal and deviant signals released by fat cells, to draw a link between those signals and chronic diseases such as diabetes, and to discuss the role of exercise in reversing some of the deviant signaling perpetrated by excess fat. Dr. Lisa Stenobittle is professor and chair in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science and scientific director at Great Plains Diabetes Institute, University of Kansas Medical Center, in Kansas City, Kansas. Skeletal Muscle Insulin Resistance, Roles of Fatty Acid Metabolism and Exercise by Dr. Lorraine Turcotte and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. The purpose of this review is to provide information about the role of exercise in the prevention of skeletal muscle insulin resistance, that is, the inability of insulin to properly cause glucose uptake into skeletal muscle. Insulin resistance is associated with high levels of stored lipids in skeletal muscle cells. Aerobic exercise training decreases the amounts of these lipid products and increases the lipid oxidative capacity of muscle cells. Thus, aerobic exercise training may prevent insulin resistance by correcting a mismatch between fatty acid uptake and fatty acid oxidation in skeletal muscle. Additionally, a single session of aerobic exercise increases glucose uptake by muscle during exercise, increases the ability of insulin to promote glucose uptake, and increases glycogen accumulation after exercise, all of which are important to blood glucose control. There also is some indication that resistance exercise may be effective in preventing insulin resistance. The information provided in this article is intended to help clinicians understand and explain the roles of exercise in reducing insulin resistance. Lead author Dr. Lorraine Turcotte is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. 
exercise and glycemic control in diabetes, benefits, challenges, and adjustments to pharmacotherapy by Dr. Eric Golvie. Exercise, along with dietary intervention, represents first-line therapy for diabetes mellitus. Aerobic exercise is recommended for its beneficial effects on glucose control. Aerobic exercise is also recommended for its ability to retard the progression of other comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease, that are common in patients with diabetes. The capability of aerobic exercise to improve glycemic control in diabetes is well documented, although adherence to exercise regimens is problematic. More recently, the glucose-lowering effects of resistance training have also been documented. This form of exercise has additional benefits, such as the capability to counteract sarcopenia, which is common in older people with type 2 diabetes. Exercise in people with diabetes, however, also can present significant challenges to glycemic control. Excessive glucose lowering can occur under certain conditions, enhancing the threat of hypoglycemia. In other situations, hyperglycemia can be accentuated. An understanding of the interactions between specific anti-diabetic medications and various forms and intensities of exercise is essential to optimizing glycemic control and minimizing the potential for acute derangements in plasma glucose levels. Exogenous forms of insulin and agents that stimulate insulin secretion in a glucose-independent manner, such as sulfonylureas and glynides, increase the propensity for hypoglycemia during low-to-moderate-intensity aerobic exercise. In contrast, high-intensity exercise protocols are more likely to result in episodes of hyperglycemia. Strategies to minimize inappropriate swings in glycemic control are reviewed. Dr. Eric Golvie is employed by Biogenerator of St. Louis, Missouri. Next, diabetes-related microvascular and macrovascular diseases in the physical therapy setting by Dr. W. Todd Cade. Physical therapists commonly treat people with diabetes for a wide variety of diabetes-associated impairments, including those from diabetes-related vascular disease. Diabetes is associated with both microvascular and macrovascular diseases affecting several organs, including muscle, skin, heart, brain, and kidneys. A common etiology links the different types of diabetes-associated vascular disease. Common risk factors for vascular disease in people with diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes, include hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, hypertension, tobacco use, and obesity. Mechanisms for vascular disease in diabetes include the pathological effects of advanced glycation accumulation, impaired vasodilatory response that is attributable to nitric oxide inhibition, smooth muscle cell dysfunction, overproduction of endothelial growth factors, chronic inflammation, hemodynamic dysregulation, impaired fibrinolytic ability, and enhanced platelet aggregation. It's becoming increasingly important for physical therapists to be aware of vascular complications related to diabetes as more patients are presenting with insulin resistance and diabetes. The opportunities for effective physical therapy interventions, such as exercise, are significant. Dr. Todd Cade is Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy and Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. 
Excessive adipose tissue infiltration in skeletal muscle in individuals with obesity, diabetes mellitus, and peripheral neuropathy. Association with performance and function. By Dr. Tiffany Hilton, Laurie Tuttle, Catherine Bannert, Dr. Michael Miller, and Dr. David Sinecor. The primary purpose of this study was to report differences between individuals with obesity, diabetes mellitus, and peripheral neuropathy, and individuals without these impairments in the following. Calf intermuscular adipose tissue, muscle strength, muscle power, and physical function. A secondary purpose was to assess the relationship between intermuscular adipose tissue and muscle strength, muscle power, and physical function. Two women and four men with obesity, diabetes mellitus, and peripheral neuropathy participated in this study. Their mean age was 58 years. Their mean body mass index was approximately 36. Their mean modified physical performance test score was 22. Six age and sex-matched control subjects without these impairments also were assessed. The two groups were compared in muscle strength, muscle power, physical functioning, and muscle and fat volume, including intermuscular adipose tissue in the calf muscles. Muscle, adipose tissue, and intermuscular adipose tissue volumes of each calf were quantified by non-invasive magnetic resonance imaging. Muscle strength and power of the plantar flexor and dorsiflexor muscles were quantified using isokinetic dynamometry. The modified physical performance test was used to assess physical function. Leg muscle and fat volumes were similar between groups, although intermuscular adipose tissue volumes were 2.2 times higher in the subjects with obesity, diabetes mellitus, and peripheral neuropathy compared with the control subjects. The following were lower in subjects with obesity, diabetes mellitus, and peripheral neuropathy compared with the control subjects. Muscle strength, muscle power, ratio of leg muscle power to leg muscle volume, and modified physical performance test scores. The data indicate that excess fat infiltration in leg skeletal muscles is associated with low calf muscle strength, low calf muscle power, and impaired physical function in individuals who are obese with diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy. Lead author Dr. Tiffany Hilton is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Ithaca College Rochester Center in Rochester, New York. At the time of the study, Dr. Hilton was a postdoctoral fellow in the Applied Kinesiology Laboratory in the Program in Physical Therapy at Washington University's School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Comparison of combined aerobic and high-force eccentric resistance exercise with aerobic exercise only for people with type 2 diabetes mellitus by Dr. Robin Marcus, Sheldon Smith, Dr. Glenn Morell, Dr. Odessa Addison, Dr. Leland Dibble, Donna Wehoff-Stice, and Dr. Paul Listeo. The purpose of this study was to compare the outcomes between a diabetes exercise training program using combined aerobic and high-force eccentric resistance exercise and a program of aerobic exercise only. Fifteen subjects with type 2 diabetes mellitus participated in a 16-week supervised exercise training program. There were two groups, 
Seven subjects received a combined program of aerobic and eccentric resistance exercise, and eight subjects received a program of aerobic exercise only. Outcome measures included thigh lean tissue, thigh intramuscular fat, glycosylated hemoglobin, body mass index, and six-minute walk distance. After training, both groups experienced decreases in mean glycosylated hemoglobin with no significant between-group differences. There was an interaction between group and time with respect to change in thigh lean tissue cross-sectional area, with the group that received the combined aerobic and eccentric resistance exercise program gaining more lean tissue. After training, both groups experienced decreases in mean cross-sectional area of intramuscular fat in the thigh and increases in six-minute walk distance with no between-group differences. There was an interaction between group and time with respect to change in body mass index with the group that received the combined aerobic and eccentric resistance exercise program experiencing a greater decrease in body mass index. After participating in a 16-week exercise program, the following were demonstrated in both groups. Significant improvements in long-term glycemic control, thigh composition, and physical performance. Subjects in the group that received the combined aerobic and eccentric resistance exercise program demonstrated additional improvements in thigh lean tissue and body mass index. Improvements in thigh lean tissue may be important in this population as a means to increase resting metabolic rate, protein reserve, exercise tolerance, and functional mobility. Lead author Dr. Robin Marcus is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. Next, clinical measures of physical fitness predict insulin resistance in people at risk for diabetes by Chao Nan Chen, Dr. Li Ming Chang, and Dr. Ying Tai Wu. Physical inactivity has been well documented as a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Previous studies measured the level of physical activity either with questionnaires or with direct measurements of maximum oxygen uptake. However, questionnaires are patient report measures, and methods for obtaining direct maximum oxygen uptake measurements often are not available clinically. The purpose of this study was to investigate whether clinical measurement of health-related physical fitness with a simple test battery can predict insulin resistance, a precursor of type 2 diabetes in people at risk for diabetes. The researchers recruited a total of 151 volunteers with at least one diabetes risk factor, such as overweight, hypertension, dyslipidemia, family history, impaired glucose tolerance, gestational diabetes, or delivering a baby weighing more than 4 kilograms. The researchers measured the following. Insulin resistance, as determined with the homeostasis model assessment of insulin resistance, Physical fitness, including body composition, as determined with the body mass index and waist circumference, muscle strength, muscle endurance, flexibility, and cardiorespiratory endurance. They also administered a physical activity questionnaire. Backward regression analysis was used to build the prediction models for insulin resistance from components of physical fitness and physical activity. In men, the following predicted insulin resistance body mass index, muscle strength, and cardiorespiratory fitness. In women, the following predicted insulin resistance. Age, 
waist circumference, and cardiorespiratory fitness. Clinical measures of physical fitness can predict insulin resistance in people at risk for diabetes. The findings support the validity of clinical measures of physical fitness for predicting insulin resistance in people at risk for diabetes. Lead author Chow Nen Chen is a Ph.D. candidate in the School and Graduate Institute of Physical Therapy, College of Medicine at National Taiwan University in Taipei, Taiwan. Next, Diabetes Mellitus and Gait Dysfunction, Possible Explanatory Factors by Dr. Jennifer Bratch, Jamie Talkowski, Dr. Elsa Strottmeyer, and Dr. Ann Newman. Gait characteristics differ in people with diabetes compared with those without diabetes. There is limited information regarding potential explanatory factors for this association. This study examined the association between diabetes and gait characteristics in older adults and explored potential explanatory factors. The researchers used a cross-sectional observational study design. At the 1998 to 1999 clinic visit, 558 ambulatory older adults with mean age of 79 years from the Pittsburgh site of the cardiovascular health study had an assessment of the following. Gait characteristics, diabetes, health status, cognition, mood, lower extremity circulation and sensation, vision, lower extremity strength, physical activity, and body mass index. A series of linear regression models were developed to examine the association between diabetes and gait characteristics and to examine the potential explanatory factors for the associations. Diabetes was related to gait speed. However, the association was partially explained by health status variables, cognition, mood, lower extremity circulation and sensation, visual impairment, lower extremity strength, physical activity, and body mass index. The greatest proportion of the association was explained by health status and lower extremity strength. Diabetes was related to step width. The association could not be explained by the examined factors. Diabetes was associated with gait alterations in older adults. Slowed gait speed appears to be secondary to the peripheral effect of the disease on other body systems. The effect of diabetes on step width was not explained in the analyses and may be related to peripheral motor nerve function or central influences of the disease, which could not be assessed in this study. Lead author Dr. Jennifer Bratch is Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Plantar Stresses on the Neuropathic Foot During Barefoot Walking by Dr. Michael Miller, Dr. Daquan Zhu, Catherine Bannert, Lori Tuttle, and Dr. David Sinecor. Patients with diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy are at high risk for plantar skin breakdown due to unnoticed plantar stresses during walking. The purpose of this study was to determine differences in stress variables between the forefoot, where most ulcers occur, and the rear foot during barefoot walking in subjects with and without diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and a plantar ulcer. 24 subjects participated. A group of 12 subjects with diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and a plantar ulcer, and a control group of 12 subjects with no history of diabetes mellitus or peripheral neuropathy. 
The subjects were 11 men and 13 women, with a mean age of 54 years. Planter pressures were measured during barefoot walking by using a pressure platform. Stress variables were estimated at the forefoot and the rear foot for all subjects. These variables included peak planter pressure, peak pressure gradient, peak maximal subsurface shear stress, and depth of peak maximal subsurface shear stress. All stress variables were higher in the forefoot than in the rear foot. The peak pressure gradient showed the greatest difference. All stress variables were higher in the forefoot in the group with diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy compared with the control group. The peak pressure gradient showed the greatest difference. The depth of peak maximal subsurface shear stress in the forefoot in the group with diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy was half that of the control group. These results indicate that stresses are relatively higher and located closer to the skin surface in locations where skin breakdown is most likely to occur. These stress variables may have additional value in predicting skin injury over the traditionally measured peak planter pressure, but prospective studies using these variables to predict ulcer risk are needed to test this hypothesis. Lead author Dr. Michael Miller is Associate Professor in the Program in Physical Therapy and Department of Radiology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Next, Effect of Weight-Bearing Activity on Foot Ulcer Incidence in People with Diabetic Peripheral Neuropathy, Feet-First Randomized Controlled Trial by Dr. Joseph Lemaster, Dr. Michael Miller, Dr. Gail Reiber, Dr. David Murr, Dr. Richard Madsen, and Dr. Vicki Kahn. Weight-bearing exercise has been contraindicated among people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. However, recent cohort studies have suggested that daily weight-bearing activity is associated with a lower risk for foot ulceration. The objective of this study was to determine the effect of a lower extremity exercise and walking intervention program on weight-bearing activity and foot ulcer incidence in people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. This study was an observer-blinded 12-month randomized controlled trial. Part 1 of the intervention was conducted in physical therapy offices. Part 2 was conducted in the community. The participants were 79 individuals with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. 38 participants were randomly assigned to a control group and 41 participants were randomly assigned to an intervention group. Intervention components in Part 1 included leg strengthening and balance exercises and a graduated self-monitored walking program. Intervention components in Part 2 were motivational telephone calls every two weeks. Both groups received diabetic foot care education, regular foot care, and eight sessions with a physical therapist. The researchers used accelerometers to measure total daily steps and exercise bout-related daily steps at baseline and at 3, 6, and 12 months. Foot lesions, or ulcers, were photographed and classified by an independent panel of dermatologists. Use of adequate footwear was monitored. At 6 months, bout-related daily steps increased 14% from baseline in the intervention group and decreased 6% from baseline in the control group. Although the groups did not differ statistically in the change in total daily steps, Steps had decreased by 13% in the control group at 12 months. Foot ulcer rates did not differ significantly between groups. 
Promoting weight-bearing activity did not lead to significant increases in foot ulcers. Weight-bearing activity can be considered following adequate assessment and counseling of patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Lead author Dr. Joseph Lamaster is assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, School of Medicine, at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Next, inflammatory osteolysis in diabetic neuropathic Charcot arthropathies of the foot by Dr. David Sinecor, Dr. Mary Hastings, Catherine Bannert, Faye Fielder, Dr. Dennis Villarreal, Dr. Villaray Blair III, and Dr. Jeffrey Johnson. Osteolysis and low bone mineral density are underappreciated consequences of several chronic diseases that may elevate the risk for fracture. The purpose of this study was to assess tarsal bone mineral density associated with acute inflammation, that is, inflammatory osteolysis, in individuals with chronic diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and recent-onset neuropathic Charcot arthropathy of the foot. This was a case-control study of 32 people, 11 men and 21 women, with diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and Charcot arthropathy of the foot or ankle. These subjects were compared with 64 age, sex, and race-matched control subjects, 24 men and 40 women without diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, or Charcot arthropathy. Within the first three weeks of cast immobilization, bone mineral density was estimated in both calcanei using quantitative ultrasonometry. Acute inflammation was confirmed by comparing skin temperature differences between the feet of the subjects with diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and Charcot arthropathy, and the feet of the control subjects. Skin temperature differences between the involved foot and the non-involved foot of these subjects with diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and Charcot arthropathy averaged almost 7 degrees Fahrenheit compared with 0 degrees Fahrenheit in the feet of the control subjects. Average calcaneal bone mineral density in the involved feet of the subjects with diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and Charcot arthropathy was lower compared with their non-involved feet or the combined right and left feet of the control subjects. Inflammation in individuals with diabetes mellitus, peripheral neuropathy, and Charcot arthropathy may contribute to or exacerbate a rapid loss of bone mineral density. Inflammatory osteolysis may be a prominent factor responsible for both the spontaneous onset of neuropathic fracture and the insidious and progressive foot deformity that is the hallmark of the chronic Charcot foot. Lead author Dr. David Sinecor is Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine and Program in Physical Therapy and Director of the Applied Kinesiology Laboratory at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Diabetes and Associated Risk Factors in Patients Referred for Physical Therapy in a National Primary Care Electronic Medical Record Database by Carmen Kirkness, Dr. Robin Marcus, Dr. Paul Listeo, Dr. Carl Ash, and Dr. Julie Fritz. The prevalence of type 2 diabetes in the general population has increased dramatically over the last decade. Yet patients with diabetes are rarely referred for physical therapy management of their condition. The majority of patients referred for outpatient physical therapy have musculoskeletal-related conditions, 
Secondary conditions, such as diabetes, may be prevalent in this population, and physical therapists need to be aware of this to adjust interventions and treatment. The purpose of this article is to describe the prevalence of diabetes and the associated risk factors in adults referred for physical therapy in a primary care outpatient setting. Patients 18 years of age or older who were referred for physical therapy were identified from the Centricity Electronic Medical Records Database during the period of December 13, 1995 to June 30, 2007. Patients were evaluated on the basis of clinical criteria including height, weight, blood pressure, and laboratory values, treatment criteria including prescriptions, and diagnostic criteria including ICD-9 codes to identify the presence of diabetes or associated risk factors such as hypertension, elevated triglycerides, low high-density lipoprotein, body mass index, and pre-diabetes. There were approximately 53,000 patients referred for physical therapy, the majority of whom were referred for a musculoskeletal-related condition. Approximately 80% of the total study population had diabetes, pre-diabetes, or risk factors associated with diabetes. The prevalence of diabetes in the study population was 13%. Of the diabetes-associated risk factors evaluated, Hypertension was the most prevalent at 70%. 39% of the study population had an elevated body mass index. Only 20% of the study population had values within normal limits for all clinical treatment and diagnostic criteria. Clinical and treatment measurements available to physical therapists identified the majority of associated risk factors. Although they were not the primary indications for referral, Diabetes and associated risk factors were identified in a high proportion of the study population. The evaluation of associated conditions in the outpatient orthopedic setting needs to be considered for treatment planning adjustments and to optimize care. Lead author Carmen Kirkness is Research Associate at the Pharmacotherapy Outcomes Research Center and the Department of Pharmacotherapy at the University of Utah College of Pharmacy in Salt Lake City, Utah. Next, Economic Realities Associated with Diabetes Care, Opportunities to Expand Delivery of Physical Therapist Services to a Vulnerable Population, by Dr. Rhea Cohn. Each year, more Americans are newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes mellitus. The costs for managing this disease are high, and the cascade of problems associated with poorly controlled diabetes is significant. At the same time, the number of uninsured or underinsured Americans is growing. This article describes current trends in health insurance availability and coverage for the growing number of people with diabetes and addresses the direct costs associated with treating this disease. The economic burden of health care for people with diabetes continues to escalate. Payers and employers are interested in decreasing their direct and indirect costs, improving profit margins, decreasing employee absenteeism, and increasing employee productivity. For physical therapists to recognize existing or new opportunities to participate in the management of this costly disease, it is critical that they understand how employees, payers, and employers are responding to the changing market forces affecting health insurance. Dr. Rhea Cohn is Director 
of Workers' Compensation Business Operations at National Rehabilitation Hospital in Washington, D.C. Last this month, Physical Activity and Diabetes, Opportunities for Prevention Through Policy by Dr. Anjali Deshpande, Dr. Elizabeth Dodson, Ira Gorman, and Dr. Ross Brownson. Over the past decade, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes mellitus has reached epidemic levels in the United States and other developed countries. With a concomitant rise in obesity levels in the United States and advances in the treatment of diabetes and its complications, the prevalence of diabetes is expected to continue to rise through the year 2050. Despite strong evidence that regular physical activity can prevent or delay the onset of diabetes, too many Americans are not meeting the recommended levels of regular physical activity. Although most physical activity interventions to date have been focused on characteristics of the individual, more recent studies have considered how changing characteristics of the social and physical environment in which people live may ultimately have a greater impact on increasing population levels of physical activity. Policy interventions are a way to make sustainable changes in the physical environment of a community and thus provide support for other intrapersonal and interpersonal behavioral change interventions. Policy changes also can affect the social norms that shape behavior. The purposes of this perspective article are, one, to describe the rationale for population approaches to primary prevention of type 2 diabetes. Two, to discuss how policy interventions can increase physical activity levels within populations. And three, to provide recommendations for the role of physical therapists in interventions that can increase the level of physical activity in communities. Public health approaches to curb the diabetes epidemic are urgently needed. Policy interventions to increase population levels of physical activity show promise for diabetes prevention. Physical therapists are uniquely suited to influence primary prevention efforts for diabetes. Lead author Dr. Anjali Deshpande is Research Assistant Professor in the Division of Health Behavior Research in the Department of Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. Thanks for listening.